Hi, friends. I'm Renee. I'm Diana. And I'm KJ. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. Welcome back to a new episode. Thank you to Diana and KJ for joining me again. If you haven't guessed by now, KJ and Diana appearing means that, yes, we're going to continue talking about our October Day reread. But first, we're going to discuss our one good thing and talk about the media we've been consuming. Diana, do you want to launch us off with your one good thing? Yeah, so mine has a bit of a preamble and just upfront content warnings about sexual coercion, verbal and emotional abuse, and a lot of men in positions of authority being terrible. So for folks who don't know, I would say women's sports, particularly women's soccer, is like my other fandom. Like, I love women's sports. I follow, like, I grew up watching the WNBA. I got into women's soccer during the 2015 World Cup. I've been following the sport since then, and this past season, there's been a series of events with coaches who had been hired despite past incidences of them being shitty, and then subsequently either resigning or being fired. And so this happened with my team, the Washington Spirit, with their coach, Richie Burke. This happened with Racing Louisville, with their coach, Christy Holly, O.L. Reigns coach, resigned in early July and it turned out he was asked to resign because he had made uh, humiliating comments about a player's weight or body in the presence of the entire team and someone complained. Anyway, on Thursday, the website The Athletic dropped this bombshell report detailing just these horrific allegations from two former players against prominent coach Paul Riley, one that he had coerced a sexual relationship with one of the players and that he had forced the two players who went on the record to kiss in order to get the team out of a really hard training drill. And since that report dropped on Tuesday, there have been other players talking about, that's when we found out about the oil rain coach being asked to resign. There was just this groundswell support for the players and just kind of this reckoning. So the commissioner resigned, head counsel resigned, Paul Riley got fired, and the games this weekend, including the one I was supposed to go to yesterday, ended up being canceled because the players were just like, we cannot play with all of this. Like, it is just not feasible. Long lead into my good thing, but Paul Riley, when he had done some of these awful things, had been the coach of Portland, and he had been let go in 2015. And the way that the initial announcement was phrased was that this was a results-based decision because Portland had just missed the playoffs. We wish Paul all the best. And it turned out that there actually had been like a quote-unquote investigation and that was the real reason he was let go, not that it was communicated. And so the Portland supporters group organized a rally slash protest at the stadium yesterday to give people an outlet for all the rage and frustration that they're feeling and to show the players, you know, we have your backs, we believe you. And I went to that and it was just this really cathartic 
experience just being around so many people who are also furious, who also want the league to be better, who also want to make sure that the players, a lot of these women who are making less than 30000 a year to play the sport and entertain us are protected, that they end up getting a good CBA, that they aren't being preyed upon by these terrible men in management, and also to hold management accountable because, yes, these coaches have been fired, and yes, the commissioner is gone, but that doesn't change the fact that the people who made the decisions to hire these shitty coaches in the first place are still there and that the ownership group haven't shown up to the CBA negotiations. Like there's still so much work that needs to be done. But yeah, my good experience was just going to the rally and being around other people and having that little bit of community, even though I'm not a Portland Thorns fan. Yikes. I literally had a rage headache on Thursday when the news was breaking. It was... It was bad, like just everything that was coming out. And I have a feeling Monday more things are going to be coming out. That's just like my gut instinct because the Players Association put a anonymous 24-hour hotline for people to report things. And I just have a feeling that if not Monday, at some point next week, more stories are going to come out. These are never isolated incidents. No, and I think it's very telling the fact that these stories are starting to come out when the players like have a players association, when they are negotiating for a contract, they now have some sort of institutional protection that's not from the ownership. Unions are great. Unions are great. If you have a chance to join a union, please join a union. And if you don't, look into organizing one because unions protect everyone, unless they're police unions and then they can go die in a fire. A cab, including their unions. Okay, KJ, what is your one good thing? So the good thing I'm going to talk about today is uh, the vacation I came back from a couple weeks ago. I was on a houseboat on Lake Shasta with a group of friends. It's a thing I've done a couple years now, and it's one of those really great escapes because it's it's about a four-hour drive from the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, so it's not too far, but it's a very different sort of environment, except when you're out in the middle of the lake, when you're up against the edges of the lake, and sometimes even in the middle of the lake, depending, there's almost no cell phone coverage. So it's a great way to um, escape the world pretty much completely for a few days. If we park in the same place for a whole day, you basically go almost maybe the whole day without any cellular internet access at all. And while in my normal life, that would not be great, in a planned time away, it is great. So it's just, you know, it's relaxing in the sun and hanging out with friends and hopping in the water a little bit. I'm not as much a water person as some of my friends are, but I still got to swim around a little bit. It's just a really great escape. And then this year, there was also, I get, I get a dramatic story out of this. We were supposed to be there from Sunday to Sunday. And then on Wednesday afternoon, a, a forest fire broke out. And we found out on Thursday morning that it was threatening the marina where our cars were parked. At first, it seemed like we would be okay, so we continued to spend Thursday out on the lake. It was actually very interesting and kind of terrifying at the same time to watch them fighting the fire. We could see the Air Corps, the helicopters and the planes flying around, the spotters uh, who are looking for places where the fire is broken out, uh, helicopters dumping water on the flames, bigger planes dumping uh, the bright red fire retardant on the flame on the fire. It's really kind of interesting to watch. Um, and then that night we actually could see the fire. And um, it was, again, sort of dramatic and cool and a lot less scary than it would have been 
given that it was five, about five miles away and there was an entire lake between us and them. <laughs> we weren't in any kind of danger at any point. But then we found out on Friday morning that our marina had been evacuated. And while we could have stayed out on the lake, we decided that it was best to go. Our cars were parked at the marina and we were afraid that it might get to a situation where we couldn't get out if we had to. So we decided on Friday morning that we should just leave. The road was safe. The road was clear. Uh, there were fire personnel working on it. The whole way out, we could actually see them clearing brush and preparing to hold it as a fire line sometime in the future. If you follow California Fire News, this was the Fawn Fire uh, in the Lake Shasta Redding area. Pretty significant one, as it turns out. It's one of those things that uh, it was really neat to watch, and I hope I never have to do it again. <laughs> but uh, it makes a good story now. Um, I was going to say that my, I was the only person whose good thing wasn't political at all, but I will say uh, California fires are, as I think everyone knows, increasing in their duration and intensity. Fire is a natural part of the California climate because we have the wet season and then the long dry season. As you get to the end of the long dry season in September and October, uh, lightning strikes happen, other things happen, and it lights fires, and it's just a thing that happens naturally. But the number and intensity of the fires is absolutely related to climate change and poor forest management and poor management by PG&E, the Northern California Utility Company. Now, this fire was not any of those things. This fire was a camper who started an ill-advised campfire, and she was in fact arrested uh, for arson. So this isn't a PG&E fire, but I, I'm sure still the, the climate change and poor forestry management that California has been doing over the last two decades is a contributing factor. My good thing is that I am working with a committee on a ballot initiative in our city. In a lot of places, it varies how city councilors are elected. Sometimes you have city councilors elected at large, which means everybody in the whole city can vote on every single council position. And in some places, they're by ward only, where only the people in each ward can vote on the councilor positions in their ward. Or you have a hybrid system, which is a mix of the two. At-large systems are extremely racist because under an at-large system, you can have a situation like we have where a counselor gets elected at large and most of those counselors' residents don't like them because they get elected by the power of people in other parts of the city. There has been a desire here to get rid of our racist at-large system and people have been working on it for over a decade and we've finally gotten the movement on it. Last year and early this year, have been like the process of getting it through the city council and onto the ballot. And we finally got it onto the ballots. It will be on the ballot in our city during the, our May 2022 primary. Me and some other people have gotten together and formed a committee to raise money and talk to voters about, about the issue. We are calling it Jonesboro Forward. I thought it was very cute. Obviously, Jonesboro Forward is a play on the thing that was happening after our tornado went or hit our city. And there were a lot of Jonesboro strong signs going around. But I also wanted to get the, like the, the word ward in people's vocabulary. So it works on two. It, it works the first way for most people who aren't going to care. But it also works the second way because Jonesboro for ward. 
Yes, I am a nerd. So I came up with that and we worked up a logo and we've collected uh, people who are interested in getting involved. We are hoping to make it as bipartisan as possible. I mean, it's not a partisan issue for me because voting and having a more direct access to who represents you on a government body seems pretty, you know, nonpartisan because it can benefit whoever. And I'm really excited because I think that this can pass. A few years ago, there was a sales tax initiative where a group wanted to raise money via a sales tax to make quality of life improvements in my city. They did a, they did a lot of stuff correctly, but there was a lot of stuff they did not do correctly as far as organizing goes. And the final vote was like 5,000 to 4,800. And the difference in... The difference in the election was 211 votes. When people talk to me about like, oh, elections don't matter. Well, that's because you're only paying attention to federal. Based on those numbers, I like did a bunch of number crunching and figured and figured out what our win number was. And I really think that we can win this election if we do the work. So that is my good thing. I'm very excited to get rid of this really gross system that also puts way too much money into the political process. If you're running citywide, and you have to, if your city runs under an at-large system, that means you have to organize the whole city. But if you're only running in your own ward, that opens that seat up to people who may not have generational wealth, that may not have a ton of time to knock, you know, 20,000 doors or whatever we have here. Fingers crossed for us, (laughs) y'all. Next up, we're going to talk about the media we've been consuming. KJ, why don't you go first? Sure. One of the great things about uh, houseboat trips is that I get a lot of time to read. This year, I read three books. They were Piranesi uh, by Susanna Clark, uh, Soul Star, which was the last book in the Witchmark trilogy by C.L. Polk, and The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. All of these had been on my read list for a while, uh, so it was great to get them all finished and I enjoyed them all. Um, I'm going to talk about The City We Became a little bit because there's a lot of ways in which it wasn't what I was expecting. I don't know if Statute of Limitations of Spoilers is up um, or not, but I will go ahead and let you know that I am going to spoil it some. I don't know how I missed this. Maybe it was in the marketing and maybe it wasn't. But I was expecting more of an urban fantasy uh, where the city is a character. Instead, it's urban eldritch horror where the city is a character. It's very uh, direct a, a conversation with the Lovecraft mythos, which is something that I have not spent a lot of time reading. I haven't read any Lovecraft myself, and that's not because of his uh, misogynistic or uh, racist tendencies. It's just because it's not not the kind of horror I usually enjoy. It was interesting for this book that I had been greatly anticipating because books about cities and urban environments and books where the city is a character are things that I love. So I had been eagerly anticipating this. So for it to be something quite, to turn into something that I usually don't like was a little bit jarring. That said, it's N.K. Jemison, so it was brilliantly written and very thought-provoking and sometimes heartbreaking, often unexpected. The premise is that the city of New York is becoming uh, born. It's, being, it's turning into a, 
an organism with a soul, but instead of having one soul, it has six, uh, one for the city as a whole and one for each of the boroughs. The soul of Staten Island is rejecting the city. Instead of working together the way they're supposed to, she ends up working against them. I don't think maybe anybody other than N.K. Jemison could have engaged with the racist and misogynist uh, legacy of Lovecraft in quite such a satisfying way. I would say it probably, though, would mean more to me if I were more familiar with the mythos, because it clearly draws quite directly on the Lovecraft mythos. The city of Ryla is also a character in the book, and I had to look that up. I didn't even know that there was a city. I'd heard the name, but I didn't, even, I didn't know it was a city, and I didn't know it was from a Lovecraft story. So part of me is like wants to know more so that I can better get the references, and part of me knows that I don't have any interest in actually sitting down and reading Lovecraft. <laughs> so maybe I'll find a primer somewhere. Because this is a trilogy, there are going to be two more, and I will read them for sure. That was interesting and, and not what I, not the kind of reading experience I expected. I'm glad I actually had some uh, uninterrupted time on vacation to sit with it and engage with it in that way. Uh, the other uh, media that I wanted to mention was Ted Lasso, the second season. As of this recording, I think the first eight episodes have aired and I am caught up with them. I watched this with a group of friends, which definitely adds to the experience. We get to talk about the episodes before and after. And it's one of the most interesting and true depictions of therapy that has ever been on television, particularly given therapy with a character who is resistant to the idea of therapy and how truly that is depicted. There is a couple of new romances on the story that are taking directions I would not have expected and that's fun. I don't know if there's anybody who hasn't already heard the good word of Ted Lasso being spread, but you know, if you haven't tried it and you're looking for something warm and funny uh, and engaging with good people doing their best, it is definitely recommended. So I think I'm next for media stuff. So recently I started and finished Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. So this is a video game. It came out a couple of years ago and I hadn't played it because I was a little tired of white dude protagonists. I'm not a big fan of the combat, and it's definitely one where I would recommend playing on easy just because the combat's really unforgiving. But once I did that, I enjoyed the story. So it follows a Jedi Padawan Cal Kestis who survived Order 66, and he's working on a scrapyard planet, and his past gets discovered, and so he has to run, and he ends up picking up some allies, including the best droid friend, BD-1, who he calls Bud because he he's like the best little droid he's so renee you would love bd1 he's like the it's the best so cute i end up really enjoying the story i thought it was interesting and i really did enjoy the growth cal had as a character and i liked the side characters a lot something happens in the end game that literally had me scaring the cat screaming oh shit oh shit oh shit Overall, I did enjoy it. I might replay it and probably not soon, but I do kind of want to platinum the game. So that will take a while. I am definitely interested in the sequel, which they've confirmed is happening. Given what we know about uh, Star Wars A New Hope with Luke being officially the last Jedi, I'm very intrigued as to if the game devs are actually going to kill Cal Kestis off or if they're just going to like send him somewhere where he can't be found. Also, last month, I read the new uh, October Day book, When Sorrows Come, and I won't get spoilery because I don't think KJ or Renee has read it yet. I have. Okay. I really loved it. Like, 
it felt one like the end of arc two, like the real end of arc two. I think what was a killing frost was kind of like a partial endpoint to arc two. I think when sorrows come is like the real end of arc two. It was much happier than I was expecting, uh, given the title, and it was it very much felt like a warm hug. With so much blood because it's a Toby book and you can't expect anything less. It felt like Sean McGuire saying through book form, I, like, yes, this past year has been shitty and difficult, but here, see your friends, having a good time, like just having a happy ending and just getting kind of the narrative rest they deserve. No, I have read it. I read it in the first three or four days after it came out. You should DM me because I have a lot of feelings and I also have some speculation. Okay, I will say, so the next book, I've seen two different things for the title. So one is Be the Serpent and the other's, other is Sleep No More. I have thoughts on what Sleep No More could be and I don't have thoughts about what Be the Serpent could mean. So I'm like very interested because I, yeah. My first item is a game called Cozy Grove, which came out this earlier this summer. Cozy Grove is an Animal Crossing-esque open world adventure game. You are a spirit scout that has been sent to an island to earn badges. Something goes wrong and you end up where you're not supposed to be on this extremely haunted island with a bunch of bear ghosts. And you basically do tasks for all the bears. You gather resources. You befriend animals. It is a progress limited game meaning that the way that you progress in the game is that you get these spirit logs and you feed them to your little fire companion you have to collect a certain number of logs and after every time you collect one and you discover a new bear because that's how you discover new bear ghosts the number of logs you need goes up each day there's only a limited number of spirit logs available so it like kind of stops you from mainlining the whole game there's actually a warning on the game when you play like adjusting your clock may cause corruption (laughs) They do not want you to time travel. And I really appreciate that because I'm just like, oh, okay, I don't have any more logs, so I'm I'm going to quit. And it's just like been like a nice little kind of meditative gaming session. And the game art is so, so cute. The stories about the bears unlock slowly also. Actually, they're, they're kind of like some of the stories are kind of gutting. Like, ow. I didn't expect it to be like as kind of as dark as it is, but it deals with some pretty heavy topics. But overall, it's pretty bright. There are a lot of tasks that are happy, and you get to befriend animals. So if you like Animal Crossing, but it seems like too much, because Animal Crossing is kind of one of those games where you just keep going and keep going and keep going, and there's not really a good stopping point. So it can get kind of obsessive. Cozy Grove is kind of similar, but there's like a stopping point built in to be to like signal to you, hey, it's time to take a break. Next, there have been rumors for months now that Coldplay and BTS were going to do a collaboration. It was just rumors. We didn't know anything for sure. Finally, yes, they released their collaboration song called My Universe, and it is like a perfect, true collaboration like it really feels like both a bts and a coldplay song at the same time and i loved it so much and the the music video dropped recently from my universe and it's a full-on sci-fi epic the main reason it was such a fun time is because we kind of got to interact with coldplay fandom too 
it's kind of like if you're in one fandom and like another fandom gets like thrown into you and i think about like the experience of final fantasy and kingdom hearts kind of it's always fun because you guys get to introduce each other to like your favorite songs and your favorite in jokes and so it was just a very wonderful joyous experience to have in a really hard time the song's just really uplifting too well those are our good things for this round Hopefully, by the time we do our next round, some of us will be able to read books again. Fingers crossed. Late Eclipses is the fourth book in the October Day series by Shannon McGuire. In Late Eclipses, Toby faces the potential loss of an old friend and a choice that she thought she would never have to make again. All right, we have some feelings. So fun fact, this is the only Toby book with a two-word title. It was apparently supposed to be These Late Eclipses, but it got lost. Somehow these got uh, misplaced. Somewhere there must be a um, list of all of the October Day titles and all of the Shakespeare references that they are making. It's probably on the wiki. The first time I read Late Eclipses was when I was mainlining the series the very first time, and... I apparently just glossed over this book as like incidental, but reading it this time with some space between the other novels, it became way more clear to me like, oh, the stuff that happens in this book is extremely important. (laughs) Past me just rushed through it like it was nothing just to like get to the scene where Toby and Tybalt finally get together. (laughs) I was just rushing to get to the book where it happened. Which is two books from now. Sorry, Connor. <laughs> Again, sorry. Apolo- apologies. Also, sorry to Toby for just like rushing through this book where something extremely important happens for her multiple times. At some point on Twitter, Sean McGuire was talking about how when she was like going through books, she noticed a trend where like every third book is like a big plot thing. In the third book, we have Blind Michael. In book six, we have the introduction of Chelsea and the fact that she can get into the deeper reaches of fairy that have been closed off. So every third book is like a big event, whereas every fourth book is a big game changer for Toby. So in this book, we get the reveal of Toby's true heritage. In book eight, we get the reveal of evening. Book 12 is the reveal of uh, Toby's grandma. So I, book 16 is next, and I'm very interested to see what the big reveal is. This book opens with one of my least favorite characters in the series, the Queen of the Mists, summoning Toby to court. I really don't like this lady. I don't like her. I'm sure the feeling would be mutual. It's amazing to me how casually cruel she is, and I know fairies messed up, but yikes. One of the things that uh, struck me is just this book so much. I had I, I remembered all the things that happened to this book, but I didn't remember that they all happened in one book. You know, the thing with uh, Lily and with the final confrontation with Oleander and Toby being arrested and Toby getting the county, getting getting the, the now, being granted the now by the queen and Toby's prison break. But that was all in one book. That's a lot in one book. So I remembered that all those things had happened, but not that it was all in the course of one story. 
this is probably the first book in the series to me that has a lot of plot and forward momentum to it. I think more so than the books that precede it. It feels almost like uh, this is where the writing leveled up to a certain extent in An Artificial Night, but definitely so in this book. I would agree. And it, to me, it also feels like this was where she felt comfortable like doing more of the long game stuff because she had the assurances that there were going to be more books in the series. And so like with the first two, they they kind of read more standalone. Like looking back on them now, there's definitely more things that she was definitely laying the groundwork on but this felt like a kind of throwing down the gauntlet as to this is what you can expect from me with a long form series yeah i think that's right yeah there there are definitely things in this book that i had kind of forgotten about because there was just so much happening like i kind of forgot the subplot with connor (laughs) poor connor like i knew he was there like I know he was there but I forgot that this is the one where like he and Toby kiss and they are just like yes we're still interested in each other and maybe now we have time to like act on it I think this is also the first mention that we get of the Duchy of of Salt Mist uh, which is laying the groundwork for book five looking at your note about the queen being legit like they're def- there's definitely a lot of discussion in this book about the fact that she's not a ruler well and that she doesn't make sense as a descendant of the um previous king of king gilead we don't know that yet we don't we know that her heritage is wrong i don't know what we know about king gilead yet oh did we not know okay maybe i'm maybe i'm thinking forward yeah because we find out more about him in uh chimes at midnight yeah chimes at midnight which is book seven it still makes you wonder why anybody thought this queen was legit we can thank Evening for that. Oh, yeah. You can thank Evening for a lot of things, I guess. I have a feeling this is one of those things that was more discussed in later books that I've just forgotten. The ways in which the queen came to power and became accepted as a legitimate ruler, even though... I mean, obviously, the time of King Gilead's death was during the San Francisco earthquake, and so there's probably a lot of chaos and confusion at the time. And then who knows, right? I mean, just because we have nobility that we know to be, you know, Sylvester seems to be a pretty decent ruler, especially at this point. Um, that doesn't mean that all fairy rulers are good um, and that all monarchies are well run. The first time I read this, I was just like, okay, well, they just have a bad queen. And it's only with hindsight that you're like, wow, how did anybody think that this person was possibly legitimate as a ruler? Yeah, my guess is that evening had a lot to do with it because she was the one who is mentioned in several that she brought the queen of the mist forward and was the one who petitioned the high king and queen for her to be recognized yeah and i mean at this point all we know about the high king is that he pardoned toby for the death of blind michael we don't know much about him other than the people seem to think highly of him also there were a lot of references here to him and the other in the, in the context of quentin even though it wasn't obvious it's not obvious because we don't know yet but if we were since we're rereading obviously we we know but quentin is supposed to be in a blind fosterage and i guess it's not blind to the family that they're with i don't know if racel knows the way she acted made me think that she did. The way that she treated Quentin. If I were Sylvester, I wouldn't have told her. The way I read it was that she was, I think she thinks that he's just like a 
maybe a prince, but not like the high prince, like someone of similar power to the Queen of the Mists. So still outranking her. Yeah, so she he would still outrank her, but his parents would have no power, like she said. However, if I don't think she would have said that had she known. Or would she have? I don't trust Raceline at this point at all. No, not at all. And I think that's probably why I'm like, hmm, I'm suspicious. Because like you're gonna you're gonna poison your your own mother. Not a good person. I was also really confused about the whole idea of Raceline being okay with that. And the book drops more hints about what happened while Raceline and Luna were missing. That is a line through these books that keeps being brought up. And apparently it gets resolved eventually. I haven't reached that book yet. But that goes on for a long time. How many mysteries are in these books? A lot, apparently. The answer is a lot. We also get to meet Karen again. Really, I, I really actually like that character a whole lot. I, I actually like all of Stacy's kids a whole lot. The dream walking itself was one of my favorite tropes in fantasy when I was a kid. So it's really nice to see it like crop up here in like fascinating ways. When Toby dreamed about Oleander after the party, she had already been poisoned. I'm just fascinated by how like that type of magic works in this world. Also, the fact that she got poisoned, the first time through the book, I didn't realize it when, when she got poisoned. Because she goes through the whole book like not feeling well until Walter's like, uh, hey, you don't seem so great. Let me, let me check you out. But this read through, I, I caught it when it happened. I really like when the first time through the book, you don't, really ne- you don't necessarily pick up on it. But then the second time through the book, you're like, oh. It's right there. How did I miss it? Talking about Karen's dream, the dream that Karen brings her in, it's so interesting because you get so many hints at like as to Amadine's relationship with Simon and August. And you also get the like a preview of what Amadine can do with Bloodline because it definitely like reading through Amadine narrowed her eyes. The smell of her magic, blood and roses, suddenly filled the formerly scentless garden and Oleander screamed. Her own magic rose in response, acid and Oleanders, and was almost immediately buried under mother's blood and roses. Like, knowing now what Amadine and then later Toby can do, it definitely reads that Amadine was forcibly shifting the balance of her blood as like a, I can take away what makes you, you. How much of who you are is what you are, Amadine asked. Her voice is still soft. That was probably the worst part. How much do you think it would change? Would you like to f- uh, find out? Because when that happened, the first thing I thought of was Avatar The Last Airbender. We see Aang struggle with through the whole thing where he can't hurt people and how he eventually deals with the Fire Lord at the very end of the series. And so that's what this made me think of. This line in Fairy, there's a there's a question somewhere like, what is what is each line's purpose to Fairy? Are they meant to be protectors, guardians, punishers? If you have this power to shift how people express their fairy and or human genealogy, that I'm assuming gets explored in later books. We get it like an introduction to it, like right here, pretty explicitly, like with that memory that Karen shows Toby in the dream, and then later on when Abedin just like randomly shows up to save Toby's lab to, sh- to shift her blood, and then and then dips. I'm like, you're not even gonna stay to say yo. <laughs> like, as I said in show notes, Abedin isn't winning any Mother of the Year awards, um, although at least she did show up um, when Toby was about to die, which is not a level of care that she always shows. 
um, when it is something that only she can fix, she is there to do it. The reveal about Toby's heritage is, you know, obviously one of the big, big wham moments of this book, uh, that she's not a weak Donya she, but actually the child of the firstborn of a whole new line and one of only one and a half in existence, depending yeah. on the balance of August's blood. Simon is, uh, is Dunya she, yeah? So she'd be half, yeah. presumably. How how the mixed blood changeling works, you know, uh, the different, the you know, with the different, or or even the mixed blood full, you know, mixed blood full blood with multiple heritages is extremely complicated. Um, I wonder, you know, given um, McGuire's science background and interest in science and genetics and stuff, she, I, I feel like she has to have worked all this out, for, at least for herself. Uh, how much of it makes it into the book seems to vary. What's a mixture of races that can balance? What's a mixture that can't? I forget whether it's come up yet, whether they start thinking about how racial issues are because of incompatible parents. I think that's more in later books because you start getting a sense of what happens when a descendant of Maeve gets together with a descendant of Titania and how that impacts it. It doesn't get discussed in this book, but I, I think maybe in book five and definitely in book eight. Whereas um, August does not have any Maeve in her bloodline. She has a better chance of being, uh, of, of having a balance that will work. Speaking of science, however, this book introduces Walther, one of my favorite characters in the whole series. I love Walther. Walther's great. I really like him. He was supposed to be one of the love interests for Toby, which I find fascinating just because like in this book like for me it's pretty clear that by the time he shows up he's not like there's just no room for him between connor and tybalt and yet because you mentioned that i was looking for the signs that it was being set up as a possibility and i absolutely saw them i don't think she meant to foreshadow this given that walther was supposed to be the love interest a potential love interest for toby however at one point when she's like talking with walther and he's like oh, well, science and magic and the interplay between them and all that. And Toby's like, oh, you should probably meet my friend Stacy's oldest daughter because that's what Cassandra's doing with physics. And then several books later, they're dating. So I'm just like, I don't know if that was intentional foreshadowing or not, but well played. <laughs> I love Walter so much. And number one, just the character himself, like having the knowledge that he does and the way that he like mixes magic and science is super neat he's super no nonsense and i like how he kind of bullies toby around like listen you're just gonna do this <laughs> i need it so you're gonna do it but it's another addition to her little slowly growing circle of people who care for her not because she does things for them but just because they like her and so I really like the addition of somebody else like that. Like KJ, I also forgot that this book, because this book had so much in it and I rushed through it, I forgot that this is the book where Toby basically became a countess. At the end of this one, and I think I expected there to be more about the new now in the in this book, but it doesn't really happen until like the end when Toby was like, takes all Lily's subjects who are now homeless for because Lily has died and gives them a new home i found this like super reflective of like the first book because i think about how toby had this horrible horrible past which was not necessarily openly abusive but Devin did not seem like a great person 
and how she gets the chance to do what Devin did, but the right way. And I really, really thought that was a nice like little reflection back to the first book. Yeah, it's also I had a vague memory of it, but I that this was the book that's where you start to see the fracturing of Sylvester and Toby's relationship. So book three is where the fracturing between Luna and Toby starts. And Tybalt brings that up in this book. He's like, why are you doing this? She sent you to your death. And in this book, you have the betrayal of Simon knowing that she's not a Donya's Chi and not saying anything until his hand is forced. Sylvester. Sorry, Sylvester. We talk about the familiar, like the pseudo familial relationship and how to Toby Sylvester's always been Uncle Sylvester. And then we find out that dude, like through Faye's laws, that he's technically her uncle because Simon is considered her father and the fact that he never claimed her as family. And I just, I found that interesting given some of the comments that both Toby and other people make throughout this book. I mean, he always frames it as, you know, it was for your own protection. It was because your mother made me do it. Other sorts of reasonings. But, you know, she looks at him as the person who helped her and saved her. Part of the reason she left Fairy is because she felt she had failed him and couldn't face up to it. Not because he actually treated her in that way. To look now with this, with the eye to knowing what we're going to learn later is very interesting. It makes it a lot sadder in retrospect. I really liked Sylvester during this point in the series. I thought he was great. I felt very fondly toward him. And I've lost, I've lost a lot of that. It's a lot harder to feel that way now. It's very interesting to revisit this and see and like how my feelings towards Sylvester and Simon have basically flip-flopped. Simon doesn't become present in this series until like more present until later on. But Simon, as we find out, was just kind of, he had made some poor choices, but he did it out of, love and then he was trying to do the best that he could given his circumstances whereas Sylvester it always feels like he chose the easiest route which isn't the best route like this he's like I didn't say anything because your mother asked me not to or I didn't say anything about the family just because like at this point Simon and I just weren't talking that type of thing it's also so it's interesting to me the hints that we get about Amadine, like what's going on with Amadine and why she might have tried to change Toby's blood. So Lily says to Toby, you were the last of her protections against roses and crossroads and all they meant. And when you failed her, she didn't know what to do. My foolish princess who thought she'd be a shepherdess if only she can make you a sheep. I loved her because she brought me to this wonderful land when I found such friends. I even loved her when she left me for you. Like, we get hints that there is this prophecy regarding Amadine and her descendants, which at this point means Toby, because at the end, the Lushak is, the Lushak says, she lied because she was trying to, to save you, from what I asked before I could stop myself. Offering a small warning shake of her head, she continued, there are things in fairy that don't like your mother much, and they don't like you either, because you're the last one left to play heir for her. Sorry, she tried to spare you, first by changing your blood to make you mortal before anyone knew you existed, and then by lying about your heritage. You'd always be weak if you considered yourself Donya Shi. Your race doesn't have any of Tanya's blood, and she's the mother of illusions. Yeah, and there's a something in the previous book where Michael was like, Amadine made her choice, this road should be closed to you. Like, she wasn't going to play hero, so why are you here? I'm just very interested to know what this prophecy is, and I have a feeling we're going to get it in the next book. I need a flowchart, honestly. (laughs) 
Do you know how for some fantasy series, like you you have like a flow chart, like this happened and then this happened. Like I need one of those, but for this series, for an urban fantasy series, this is like very. This is also like being like I'm just gonna be you know cosplay is epic fantasy. You're welcome. This is why I consult the wiki. So I can't. I can't go any farther without being like oh my god Tybalt so in this book at the very beginning they're at court and Tybalt needs to cause a scene and so he and Toby like make out at at court then it like you know it devolves from there and I'm just like yes this is what this is what the people want Shane McGuire why would you taunt us this way at this point Toby is still like really conflicted over Tibble and confused about his behavior and she doesn't really understand why he won't he like he won't share stuff with her but he trusts her like there was a lot of good Toby Tibble com- content in this specific book and yet she ends up with Connor in the end yep yep it's fine we only have one more book of Connor I know it, it was the whole thing it's the whole thing about chewing through plot very quickly you know I, I was genuinely surprised both the first time and to remember in retrospect that both Lily and Oleander die in this book. So a major mentor, found family figure, protector figure for Toby, and who we think at this point is Toby's primary antagonist. Obviously, it turns out that Oleander is not Toby's primary antagonist, that she's a much smaller player who's being controlled by by Evening. But it seems like she's going to be the big bad, at least for a while. For her to be dispatched of in book four surprised me quite a bit. I thought she got away. I think it's maybe because Rachel gets away. They're so tied together that it makes sense that it would be you would remember it that way. In this book, I developed even more prejudices against purebloods and fairy status quo politics. There is a whole storyline from the very first book where Adair is killed. Her brother blames Toby for it, and we see him get caught, get so caught up in that need for revenge that he does like really not great things, and it ends up getting him killed. When he died and they left him for the night haunts, I was like, I wonder if this is going to come up again in future books because I don't remember it happening. But in a local habitation, the night haunts tell Toby, they say, Well, there's not so many fairy dying that, you know, we can you know, be picky or whatever. Well, now a lot of people in fairy are dying. <laughs> it is accelerating quite fast, in fact. This is clearly a time of upheaval, instability, and change in fairy. Um, there are, I think, a lot of reasons for that. There's what's going on with evening. There's also a different political drama that you learn about in this most recent book that's been playing out on a grand scale for a long time that I don't think is even really hinted at up to the point that it appears in the most recent book so i am curious uh how that um is going to affect the big picture to go back to tibble again the whole plot point about the court of cast being poisoned i had totally for like i had wiped it from my memory maybe that's because it was actually sort of traumatizing for me Nothing in the series like has made me cry, right? It's not that it's not really that type of series for me, but this storyline about the court of cats being poisoned was extremely upsetting for obvious reasons, I guess, for me because Toby goes to see all the sick cats and one of them is a little kitten and it doesn't make it, and it was so upsetting. <laughs> I was like, 
this was a really bad time for me to have to read about dead cats. I was very like, ow. If you wanted, like, if Shane McGuire wanted that scene to, like, pack a punch, well, guess what? It worked on me this time. But because the, there's so much stuffed into this book, the first time I just sort of glossed over it. But, like, this time I, like, took my time with every single different event that changed. Like, because it felt like every two chapters something changed dramatically. And that was one of the things that changed dramatically. A lot of death happens in this book. That's true of some other books as well, but I would say it's probably a higher and more dramatic body count than usual. In happier storyline news, we get to see Quentin and Toby like solidify their relationship. And we also see Toby and Raj get to do the same thing. And we also see like some foreshadowing of what a dickhead Raj's father is. He'll come up again soon. This book also contains the development of May as her own character because Amadine comes back and changes the balance of Toby's blood. She basically disconnects May and Toby. May was already like trying to carve out like her own spaces, her own personality, and now she gets to do it like for real. <laughs> And I was very, I was very excited to, to, because I didn't remember that happened in this book. But like May, like very quickly when after she first showed up, became one of my favorite characters. And like I just like how she's like no nonsense, but she cares about Toby very, very deeply. Number one, what a weird way to get both a sister and a best friend. Like it's not something you would expect from like a death omen, but I find it. Uh, but for Toby, I'm like, like, of course this would happen to you. Of course it would. But May here in this book is so interesting just because of the way that she mourns her mortality, like her uh, impending mortality. I thought it was really well done because the first time we, we see May, we don't necessarily like want her to be a thing because we don't want Toby to die. The fact that the book is so great about like making her this extremely sympathetic character who we who is just really hard not to love so not only are we mourning toby we're also mourning may throughout this book because we don't necessarily know whether it's likely that one or both of them will survive obviously we think toby might but for for may there was always like that doubt for me the first time i read this book that maybe toby survives at may's expense and so the so with this book that fear was always there for me. And because the body hat was so high, that was like, I was nervous. The whole first time I read this book, I wasn't so nervous this time, but I could also look back and see why I was nervous. I think the last thing that I had uh, that kind of stuck out to me was right after Amadine changed Toby's blood and she left. Did she say anything else? I asked. She said, beware the lady of the lake because she's never forgiven you your story, but to be more afraid by far of Morgane. For me, I'm pretty sure, given other context clues that we have with some of the short stories, um, the Lushak is the lady of the lake. And I think what she means, she's never forgiven you your story, is that the Lushak has never forgotten the role that Amadine and her line are supposed to play and are going to hold them accountable to it. So it's not that she's angry at Toby or wants vengeance. It's just she knows what Toby is supposed to do and isn't going to let Amadine undermine that. And then uh, be more afraid by far of Morgane. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be Ira. 
or evening. Because if we're going by Arthurian legend, Morgaine is the sister of Arthur and she's the one who helps undermine Camelot. So is Amadine Arthur in this? Uh... I don't think Amadine's Arthur. I think Toby. Toby is Arthur? Or like kind of an Arthur archetype. Well, she is the hero after all. That's just kind of me spitballing, but I'm pretty sure in this case, the Lushak is the Lady of the Lake and Morgaine is Evening. Well, the Lushak is, you know, definitely Toby's primary mentor figure from the very beginning and throughout. Also her aunt, correct? Correct. Yeah. Where do we dis- when do we discover that? Is it- yeah, this is the book where we find out that Amadine's a firstborn, which means that the Lushak is Toby's aunt. And she says, like, you know, if all my nieces and nephews were the stubborn, I'd have less family because I'd like not let you mature because you're annoying. And other all the like other books where Toby's like, oh, yeah, the loose shock and people around her are like, what? So now imagine. Oh, yeah, that's my aunt. And it happens very quickly. Like in the first book, she has the same sort of fear and healthy respect of the loose shock as everybody else. But it doesn't take long before she's much more casual about it. I was going to say, I think part of the reason is that Toby is someone who is deeply alone and mourning the loss of her family in terms of Clint and Jillian. Like, I think she sees kind of a kindred spirit with the Lushak. And maybe it's not deliberate of, oh, I see this lonely person. I am also lonely. Let me be with them. It's more of, I see this person who says they're going to kill me. And maybe if I make myself endearing, they won't want to kill me. <laughs> we don't know about the Roan yet, do we? We know a little bit about them, I think. We know in the first book that there's not a lot of Roan left because Julie's boyfriend, Ross, is like a quarter Roan. But that's the only thing that we know at this point. The a lot more We don't know about Lushak's connection. Yeah, a lot more of the undersea stuff we're we're going to find out in book five. I forgot how much of a wham episode this book is. Like, it's very much a midpoint of an arc, and it's very much like the oh shit got real book. Okay, well, Diana, how many space bees are you going to give this book? I think I'm going to give this four space bees and a jar of honey. KJ, how about you? Yeah, I think I'm the same, Um, just because of its, you know, nature of a wham element and the place where the long form storytelling and also the immediate writing uh, leveled up. We're all giving it four space bees and a jar of honey. Because, yes, I agree with all of you. That's it for late eclipses. Well, t- which now I will never again be able to see and not go, these late eclipses. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, hold on. I do have one final thought. I do have one final thought. Um, so looking at the Shakespeare quote for that opens this book, Uh, These light eclipses in the sun and moon portend no good to us, though the wisdom of nature can reason it thus and thus, yet nature finds itself scourged by subsequent events, love cools, friendship falls off, brothers divide, and I'm just like, oh, I don't know if you meant it, but you are foretelling the split between Toby and, and, and Sylvester and Luna because love cools, friendship falls off. Me rereading this book is turning me into that meme from It's Always Sunny of the guy (laughs) with the wall and the red string. I'm just like, every time we record an episode, I'm just like, see this? It connects with this. Space Beast, thanks for sticking with us. Again, thank you to KJ and Diana for coming on the show to talk about Toby Day with me. 
Our music is by Cheeky Beats and Boxcat Games. Our show art is by Ira, and our transcripts are by Susan. You can see their works at fangirlhappyhour.com. Thanks for listening to our show, and remember to stay hydrated and take care of yourselves. Humans just have ruined everything. Everything good. Humans have ruined everything. I would I would say it's more like white people have ruined everything. Oh, that's true. You're correct. Am I gonna mainline the series again and then come back to all the and reread all the books with 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 all of y'all? <laughs> Sorry. No, you're good, Renee. We'll just bully you into catching up. Shanae McGuire's never allowed to kill her. It's um, oh, listen. <laughs> I will send you a very sad tweet, Shanae McGuire. A very, a very sad email. A sternly worded blog post.